1: Bring in show music, please.
2: This is SquawkPod Pod, and I'm CNBC producer Cameron Costa. On today's episode, 2023's First, labor report crushing expectations.
3: There's so much good news in this report, but we've been living in this sort of strange place where good news can sometimes turn to be bad news.
2: The labor market is tight. Offices are filling back up, sort of, but inflation's still high. So what does it all mean for our caffeine fix? We're checking in with Starbucks CFO, Rebecca Ruggieri.
4: We do actually have more customers coming into our stores. We're up 10% versus prior year, they're not coming as frequently, but they're, more customers are coming in and they're spending more when they come in. Plus, one business
2: that's had a rip-roaring year, oil giant Chevron and its massive $75 billion buyback. The profits, the shareholder returns, and all the pushback from the White House with the oil giant's CEO, Mike
1: Wirth. What we're doing now is consistent with what we've always done. The numbers are are bigger because we're a better company.
2: It's Friday, February 3rd.
5: It was the best of times, it was the worst of times.
2: And Squawk Pod from the golfing green begins
6: right now.
7: Stand you by in three, two, one, cue it please.
6: Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We are live from the AT and T Pro Am at Pebble Beach. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan. Andrew Ross Sorkin is holding down the fort at the Nasdaq Stock Market site in Times Square. Good morning, Andrew.
3: Good morning. Good morning. It's very early for you. I'm thinking about it.
6: It's yeah, it is. <laughs> We're still 3, on East Coast time, 3 so it's all good. Exactly.
3: Speak for yourself.
6: Yeah, uh, three a.m. I've, been, out here I've since been here less time than Sunday. he has, so yeah. I'm still on East Coast time. I don't know what time
5: I'm on. I'm on Davos time
6: more workers are returning to the office than at any time that we've seen since the pandemic first hit. And it might be the threat of layoffs and more potentially to come. That's been driving the increase. Robert Frank has the latest numbers for us. Robert, what are you hearing?
7: Well, Becky, more than half the nation's office workers are now back in the office on the average weekday. Office use for the 10 biggest cities hit 50.4 percent last week, That's according to Castle. It's the first time it passed the magic 50% mark since the pandemic. There are big differences between cities, though. In Austin, Texas, 68% of workers are back. In San Jose, it's only 41%. New York is now at 48%. The actual number could be even higher. A survey of New York's biggest employers by the Partnership for New York City found that 52% of Manhattan office workers are now back. Only 10% are fully remote. That's down from 16% this fall. And most New York office workers are in at least three days a week. Employers say the new normal for New York will be around 56%. Now, the industries with the highest office rates are real estate, finance, and law. Tech now among the lowest. Labor experts say layoff fears are driving many workers back to the office. And more CEOs are cracking down. Starbucks telling employees to be in the office at least three days a week now. Disney requiring four days a week starting in March. Guys?
6: Hey, Robert, I have to say, anytime you sit and talk to CEOs and a group of them, this is a subject that comes up. All of them trying to talk about how do they get workers back, what uh, kind of tricks have they put in place, what kind of rules have they put in place. I mean, this is still a struggle more than three years out or three years out, I guess, at this point from all of these situations. And um, w- w- what happens next? I guess part of the question I would ask, too, the numbers that you were just quoting, if it's 51 percent of workers who are back in the office, but back three days a week, those numbers, is it they're back three days a week or that's how many workers are in any given day in New York City?
7: Yeah, that's in any given day. So if you look at, let's say, a Wednesday it's up near 70, 80%, whereas on Monday and Friday, it's like 20 or 30%. And you're right, it is surprising that basically three years later, we're still celebrating the fact that half of the workers are back in the office. What was stunning to me about this Partnership for New York City survey is that the employers in New York City say that the new normal, even when we're gonna reach the peak, will be 56% on the average weekday. So that's gonna be, again, a big Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Basically, very few people in the office Monday and Friday. And so, the question, not just for employers, but for cities, is what does a three day work week look like for cities whose economies, whose taxes, whose sort of whole commuting base is based on the five day work week? And that's going to be an adjustment that I don't think a lot of cities have really made, that I still think they're hoping for. 80, 90 percent, and we're just not going to get there.
6: Oh, and, then, and then you think about the services surrounding that. Can you really run a restaurant lunch business if it's only three days a week, if you had been counting on corporate accounts being there and expensing things? Um, it's going to be interesting. Robert, thank you.
2: Now, speaking of jobs and of workers, today marks the first jobs report of the new year. The U.S. economy added five hundred and seventeen thousand jobs in January. Way higher than expectations, as in more than double the estimates. It's the strongest jobs gain since July of 2022. The unemployment rate fell to 3.4%, which was also better than expectations. It's the lowest jobless level since 1969. We crashed the half-century barrier. That is unreal when you think about it. Other parts of the report to know? Wage gains came in strong, and leisure and hospitality led all sectors in jobs gains. All this seemingly good news together means the labor market is still And you'd think that's a good thing, but markets dipped in their immediate reaction. See, the Federal Reserve, which just raised interest rates a quarter of a percentage point this week, is hoping to cool the labor market. Wage gains and a hot labor market make inflation harder to control, so this good news from the Labor Department is digested as, well, maybe not that good. The Fed, it seems, still has more work to do to cool our economy and to cool inflation. Here's our own Rick Santelli breaking down the Labor Department's report with Andrew Ross Sorkin and our senior economics reporter, Steve Leisman.
3: The biggest issue of all, and I'll leave it here, is that the alignment between wages, jobs, 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 and inflation and the econometric models of the Federal Reserve may not be exactly correlating in a fashion that matches reality. You just made some very provocative uh, statements without without saying it as explicitly as you may later. We'll see. Uh, I do want to get to Steve Liesman though to get his uh, his initial reaction to this and the read through of how the Fed might react to this because there's there's so much good news in this report. But as we know, we've been living in this sort of strange place where good news can sometimes turn to be bad news. And that's at least what the initial reaction of the market is now. You also lost
1: one of the linchpins of those who thought the job market was slowing because the work week ticked up to 34.7. That was everybody said, oh, the work week's coming down. That's a sign of, of the weakening job market. That is gone as well. Um, I don't think the Fed is going to like this. Uh, because I had a a four-point checkpoint of what the Fed was looking for. Moderating uh, payrolls didn't happen. Moderating unemployment didn't happen. Uh, Wage growth was okay in terms of being stable. And then the participation rate did tick up. So only two out of four for the Fed. But I'll just leave you with this one point. Again, here we have this incredibly tight and strong job market, and wage year-over-year is coming down. So again, we have to talk about the essential underlying thesis of the Fed and Fed Chair Powell that a tight job market is leading to inflation or the biggest concern about inflation. It
3: doesn't seem to be the case, Andrew. Okay. Mr. Kernan on the West Coast, Pebble Beach. We haven't even talked about how you're playing.
5: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I know. There's a lot of wind yesterday. Uh, Andrew. You know, it's like anything else. It's you know, there's good, there's bad. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It's like a kind of like a Dickens uh, uh, novel. He had one good swing. Um, but there's always today in uh, getting up at 1.30 in the morning.
2: Next on Squawk Pod, the White House railing against big oils, big profits. But Chevron CEO Mike Worth says his company's $75 billion stock buyback plan just makes sense.
1: We're a better company than we were five years ago, so we're 20% more capital efficient, so we're actually able to deliver more output with less capital spending.
8: I
2: won't let my active psoriatic arthritis joint symptoms define me.
8: Emerge as you.
0: Infection, including fever, sweats, chills, muscle aches, or cough. Tell your doctor if you had a vaccine or plan to.
8: Emerge as you. Learn more about Tremfya, including important safety information, at tremfya.com or call 1-877-578-3527. See our ad in Food and Wine magazine. For patients prescribed Tremfya, cost support may be available.
2: This
7: is Squawk Pod. Stand under by in three, two, one, cue Andrew. Good
3: morning uh, and welcome back to Squawk Box right here live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square on one side of the country where we're doing, we're on both sides. This is a trans, not, it's a transcontinental show because uh, Becky and Joe are in Pebble Beach this morning. A headline though to tell you about, and I'm actually curious what both of you think about it, uh, the Wall Street Journal announcing the SEC considering a softening of planned rules that require companies to disclose the effects of extreme weather and other costs related to global warming. Report uh, coming as the final rules will still likely mandate some climate disclosures and financial statements, but those requirements would be less onerous than originally proposed. Change follows pushback from investors, and I think some of this had been signaled earlier, but uh, you have a guest coming up, Becky, uh, that may have some views on all of it.
6: That's right. We're going to be talking to Mike Worth right now after oil companies continue to report record profits this season. It's not the only thing they've been focused on, but politicians have been keeping political pressure on them to prioritize energy production rather than stock buybacks. Joining us right now is Chevron CEO Mike Wirth. Last week, Chevron announced a $75 billion stock buyback and raised its dividend. And, And Mike, welcome. It's the first time that you're talking to the media since that news first hit. It
1: is. It's nice to be with you.
6: It's nice to be with you, too. It's good to see you here. Um, That announcement sparked some big blowback from the White House very quickly. In fact, if I can just read some of this, the White House said at the time, for a company that claimed not too long ago that it was working hard to increase oil production, handing out $75 billion to executives and wealthy shareholders sure is an odd way to show it. We continue to call on oil companies to use their record profits to increase supply and reduce costs for the American people. Now that is uh, some politics at play. What do you make of what you heard from the White
0: House?
1: We actually are doing exactly what the White House uh, is calling for. We're uh, staying consistent with our financial priorities and financial framework that we've long had for for decades, uh, which is first to uh, prioritize the dividend. We increased it uh, 6% the 36th year in a row for dividend increases. We increased organic uh, capital spending this year 30% above what it was last year. Keep a very strong balance sheet, and when we have cash excess to those needs uh, we return it to the owners of the company we had a prior repurchase program that was authorized five years ago when we were repurchasing at about five billion dollars a year and the program was a 25 mm. billion dollar program we're a stronger company this year we're repurchasing at 15 billion dollars a year uh, a five-year execution on that plan would be 75 billion dollars it's really no more than that uh last thing I'll say is we had record production uh in the u.s last year up four percent the highest production we've ever had we expect to grow the Permian Basin 10%. This year, and globally, we expect to grow a 3% compound annual rate for the next five years. So we're, we're investing in more production, and we are returning you, cash you to our shareholders. You did not call that just shameful
5: demagoguery, I don't think. It wasn't you that said that. I might have heard someone saying that. Maybe it was a voice inside <laughs> my head. Maybe it was a voice inside my head saying it. How much of the company do these horrible executives own, Mike? What percentage of it are, are you enriching there? It's a, it's a very small percentage. It's of the a com, fraction mi- of miniscule. a fraction. Now, the wealthy shareholders, let's talk about them. Do you have any pension plans? Do you have any teachers' uh, plans that, that own any of this stock? Do you have any retirement plans? That own? Is it just these wealthy fat cat shareholders that you're enriching?
1: Or? Well, Joe, our shareholders are uh, well, institutional I, I, exactly. funds. They, they are uh, retired. Would, would you agree that's shameful demagoguery or you have a better word for it well i'm not i'm not going to really comment on what the the white house said i'll just say that we 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 it's understand the world needs more production and we're investing it's, it's, in
5: that it is com- it's completely false and it doesn't it's not helpful after you've said you're going to end fossil fuel production to then turn around a year later and say that that's what you should be doing do you know do you like getting whipsawed? What should you be doing now as a, as an executive?
1: Joe, the, the mixed signals don't make it easier to allocate capital. They make it challenging. We try to look through some of the, the political rhetoric to the fundamental needs of the economy and of the country. We're trying to increase production, to bring prices down, to stabilize markets. And we invest through long cycles, which last much longer than... Uh, political administrations and election cycles, Thank and God. so we have to allocate capital on a scale of many decades, not just a How few long? Years.
5: It's how long for the 75 billion? it's How many years is that? We, we didn't have you? it time bound. It to be at, five
6: years. At the rate yeah.
1: we're repurchasing shares right now, it would be five years. Five years. No,
6: let me just ask: what What is the math that goes into how you figure out where you're putting things? Because the world's changed a lot. Um, governments are changing the way they value things. How do you figure out what you actually spend for, on production, what you actually spend to give back to shareholders?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a function, Becky, of a very uh, consistent and, and stable financial framework where we really do prioritize the dividend as the number one priority. Our shareholders uh, are, as Joe described, and they look to our company for income first. We're not a growth sector. And so we've got a, a 6% compound annual growth rate in our dividend over the last 15 years. Uh, We need to reinvest to generate the cash flow to support that. And so that's where the organic spending comes in. We're a better company than we were five years ago. So we're 20% more capital efficient. So we're actually able to deliver more output with less capital spending. And so it's a function of the opportunities, the ability to execute them, the supply chain realities that we deal with. The third priority is to keep our balance sheet strong because two years ago, three years ago, prices were negative and we were losing billions of dollars. You need financial strength in a commodity business that goes through cycles. And then when you have cash surplus to that, we try to return it to shareholders over time, rateably, we don't try to time buybacks. We've repurchased shares 15 of the last 19 years at a price that's $2 less than the the volume weighted average over that whole period of time. So it's a very consistent, what we're doing now is consistent with what we've always done. The numbers are, are bigger because we're a better company. Uh, but the the approach is actually very, very similar to what we've been doing. Before COVID, during spend, COVID, and, uh, and, and through COVID. Could
5: you find $15 billion a year worth of additional uh, projects to to, do, to produce more oil? Do, have you ever looked at the future and said, I'm worried for shareholders about what it's going to be like five or ten years from now with ESG pressure and, and the, the climate lobby and everything else? Have, have you cut back on, on what you're doing and it's better to return it to shareholders than it is to to, to uh
1: You know, chase something that might not be a great investment? Let me give you a couple numbers to illustrate that we're not going out of business. Uh, We produce about 1 billion barrels a year, our company does. Our proved reserves are about 11 billion barrels, so that's 11 years of production. Our resource, which doesn't meet the same test as proved reserves, is over 75 billion barrels, so 75 years worth of resource. So we have plenty of resource that we can invest in. It requires technology, it requires permits, it requires engineering, it requires uh, exploration wells, and there, there's a lot that Labor, goes into it. it, it. Supply Labor, supply
5: chain
1: So we, we try to run a system that is rateable and predictable so we can deliver returns on the capital. If you, if you ramp your spending way up, you spend inefficiently, you have cost overruns, so we need to execute our projects well, which is what we're what we're doing. And we're growing at four per, three, 3 to 4% production growth over the next several years. The demand for oil and gas is growing at about 1%. So we're actually growing at a rate much faster than market demand.
6: Well, you, a huge part of your profitability is going to come down to the price for, of, of WTI and natural gas, things you sure. have no control over. You must have some guesses about where they're headed. Do you think prices go up from here as China reopens? Have you seen anything to suggest there's more demand yet?
1: We're starting to see signs out of China that there's more activity that will drive demand. So you're seeing a, a significant increase in airline flights being scheduled. So these are forward flights. Uh, we're seeing uh, road, act, road traffic and uh, road congestion. There's a number of different ways you measure this. Um, use of public transport. People are moving around. Uh, Supply chains are restarting, businesses are restarting, I spoke to people in Davos that run businesses in China that are ramping up production. So we do see uh, the indicators that the Chinese economy is uh, beginning to grow and beginning to come out of some of the restrictions that it's been under. I think what's offset that has been this concern about a slowdown in the U.S., how hard will the Fed uh, really uh, go after inflation, what does that mean for growth? And so the market has, uh, has been a little bit mixed over the last several weeks. Fundamentally, uh, supply and demand are relatively tight, and we have a lot of restrictions on what can move where and be sold to who and at what price, uh, which makes the system more vulnerable to unexpected events. And so I would say the, the, the view we have is that there's probably more risk to an upside move in prices than a downside. A downside move would come with a hard economic slowdown generally it seems like the risk of that has gone down a little bit mm-hmm. and certainly uh, an unexpected event of some sort in a volatile world is uh, is something that could push markets the other way we all hear about the eventual handoff to renewables but
5: i don't know what the numbers are what's been spent over the past 10 15 years it's trillions, trillions of dollars and it's a decimal point difference in how much of the world's energy is still fossil fuel based. It's almost the same as it was 15 years ago. When does it become not de minimis? When is it, do you see the number instead of 80%, whatever it is, X,
1: when is it X minus 10%? It's, it, this is a long cycle phenomenon, Joe. It's, it's decades. Uh, the reality is there's 8 billion people on the planet today. By living 20, pretty well, living in a 21st century world, not in an 18th century world. Many of them moving into a middle class lifestyle. Yeah. Some still not there and on the way. And all of that requires energy. We'll have 10 billion people by 2050. And so one of the challenges in changing these percentages is the absolute demand just continues to grow. Right. And so even as we see strong investment in growth in renewables, uh, it doesn't change the mix as fast as some people would like. And there are risks, and we've seen this uh, in Europe in particular. Uh, The world runs on, I'll call it System A right now, which is the one you described. Mm -hmm. There is a great desire to move to a different system, which has a very different mix, Uh, but that system is maybe 1% or 2% built today, and if we try to shut down the system that runs the world prematurely before the other one's really ready to take it, we can create some real unintended consequences. Yeah, for the people, for, you know,
5: and they're not all wealthy Americans no, living the way we do. It's going to affect a lot of, of, of people that aren't in a position to be affected yet at this point. That's what
1: we it's work gonna, on every day. We have to own that. The, the, certain people don't have to own that. I talk to people about the three things that really matter uh, when you come to energy, uh, economic prosperity, energy security, and environmental protection. We have to balance those. Yeah, we can't over-index on any one, or we see unintended consequences.
6: Right. Mike, I want to thank you for joining us this morning. It's really good to good see to you. Here. Cheese
7: will be next.
6: Coming up on Squawk Pod,
2: Starbucks stores taking a hit in China, but CFO Rachel Reggari
4: isn't too worried about consumer demand. Even though we're starting to see some signs of recovery, which is encouraging, there's still still a lot of headwinds in the market related
8: to COVID. We'll be right back.
2: I won't let my active psoriatic arthritis joint symptoms define me.
8: Emerge as you
2: You're listening to Squawk Pod from CNBC. Here's Andrew.
3: Starbucks missing analyst assessments on the top and bottom lines for its quarter. The misdriven nearly 30% drop in China comparable sales uh, with COVID closures weighing on demand. But in the U.S., comps were up 10%. And the company reiterated its fiscal 2023 outlook. Joining us right now first on CNBC is Starbucks' CFO. Uh, Rachel O'Jerry, good morning to you. Uh, bit of a mixed Hi. picture. The stock is off this morning. Um, I think really off the expectations of of uh, the, the, the reopen trade, if you will, uh, for China and, and, it, and it not happening. But I'm curious sort of how you see the China piece of this relative to the rest of the business.
4: So when we look at China, as you saw, we had you know headwinds in Q1, and we expect that will continue into Q2. And that's largely driven by the fact that even though we're starting to see some signs of recovery, which is encouraging, there's still, you know, there's still a lot of headwinds in the market related to COVID. And so as a result, we expect the back half of the year to be stronger uh, than the first uh, couple quarters. And that's what we've guided. But we have a lot of confidence in what we're seeing, because when you look at our international business, excluding China, we grew 25% in the quarter. And that's largely driven by recovery. We have double-digit comps in markets like Japan, in markets like UK, and that just speaks to the strength of recovery. So we have every confidence that the headwinds we're seeing in China today Will lead to tailwinds, and that's what gave us the ability to be able to reaffirm our guidance on a full-year basis. But also gives us a lot of confidence in the growth that we've, uh, the, the growth that we've outlined for the years to come. Can
3: you speak to um, just the the strength of the consumer? I mean, you look at some of the numbers in the U.S. of 10%. Um, a lot of it, it's not necessarily more people are coming to the stores. Though that is part of it. It's actually that people are just spending more. And, and whether you think that's going to persist.
4: Well, it's actually a combination of both. We do actually have more customers coming into our stores. We're up 10 percent versus prior year. We have a record number of customers coming into the store. They're not coming as frequently, but they more customers are coming in and they're spending more when they come in. And that is evidenced in our ticket, which was an all time high in the U.S. this quarter. Now, that's a combination of pricing, but it's also reflection of the highest attached. So food attach was another high. So strong food attach, uh, continued attach with beverage, but it also reflects the personalization uh, that we have. Increases, like we saw an increase in customization as an example, up 28%. So it's our customers choosing beverages that are best for them and that work for them. The combination of all of that is leading to a higher ticket. What we're encouraged by is that led to the highest sales that we've ever seen in the US business on a weekly basis. Eight of our 10 highest sales days ever uh, came in the quarter with our Red Cup giveaway being the highest ever, so we have we're encouraged by what we're seeing, and as long as we continue to create value for our customers in that experience, we think you know it supports uh, growth over the long term.
3: And, and well, the reason I asked about the strength of the consumer, you know, we're hearing that uh, you know Walmart is seeing and Amazon is seeing and others are seeing that you know someone who might have. Been prepared, a a very affluent person might have been prepared to buy an 85-inch TV. Is now buying a 75-inch TV. But the opposite seems to be happening in your stores, and that's what I'm trying. I'm trying to understand what you think is happening.
4: You know, definitely we understand, and we're we're cognizant of the fact that our consumers, our customers, are facing many challenges in terms of the economy, inflationary pressures, employment pressures, things of that nature. So we recognize that that's a reality. But we have not seen an actual issue with our demand. Our customers aren't trading down. uh, We're seeing them continuing to spend more. And we believe part of that is the fact that, you know, it is in some ways an affordable luxury. It's a routinized behavior. And as long as we can continue to create that value through the experience, whether it be through unique offerings that you can't get any other place, you can't make them at home, as well as different channels to be able to connect with us, we think that that's what's part of what's driving it. And we see it not only in the U.S., But we see it globally, which is encouraging.
3: Part of what drove it was the gift card business, which was kind of a remarkable thing to behold. Um, How how persistent or consistent can that business be? Obviously, um, you know, last quarter is a holiday quarter.
4: Sure. I mean, we definitely see our highest uh, activations in the Q1 period, our holiday period, because it's a gifting exchange, it's a gifting opportunity, and that's what's that. That's a big driver of what we saw. But we have a lot of different opportunities throughout the year to use Starbucks as a gifting occasion. You know, whether it be a Mother's Day, whether it be a um, a, a Teacher's Day, things of that nature. I think what's great about the Starbucks gift card is it. You know, it doesn't take a lot to be able to gift. $5, $6, so that somebody can actually get a drink or, you know, maybe a, a sandwich. And so I think it provides a lot of opportunity from a gifting ex- a gifting occasion. Oh,
3: come on, 5 or $6 doesn't buy me much at Starbucks anymore. It buys what, you a what, drink. What's the average, what's the average purchase at Starbucks right now?
4: You know, I would say it's definitely under $10. But, you know, I saw, my husband was a teacher for a really long time, and he got a lot of gift cards. And it's a great way just to be able to Go out, get yourself a drink, and you can do right. that with $5. You can do that with $6, which it's hard to do that with a lot of other gift cards.
3: Uh, you had mentioned uh, that some of these drinks are getting, as we know, more and more complicated. That's where the margin is. Uh, the more complicated uh, the drink, uh, the higher the margin. Uh, for the past year, I know with the return of Howard Schultz, uh, you guys have spent a lot of time and money uh, trying to retool these stores to make it easier for, uh, uh, for your workers and employees, what you call your partners, uh, the green aprons to do their job. Where are
4: you in that process? Well, that's part of our reinvention plan. And we had a really good quarter. We saw great progress in terms of our reinvention. We've continued to invest ahead of the curve and we're continuing to make investments in equipment, um, in our partners, in terms of training, um, in terms of wages and benefits. And all of that led to a very successful quarter in terms of we had the best productivity we'd ever seen in the month of December. And in addition to that, we saw our turnover come down by about 8%, which is uh, against our high last year in December. In addition to that, we're seeing retention improve. That creates a more stable environment, and that's important because it creates a better experience okay. for our partners. Here's a hard and our one partners. for
3: you. How much do you think that's a function of what you're doing in the store versus the macro uh, trends, which is to say that this has been a super uh, uh, tight jobs market. Is it loosening up, and is that part of what's happening here?
4: It's definitely a combination. I mean. There's no doubt that our, our ability to hire is much easier than it was a year ago at this time. But I think because we've invested ahead of the curve and we've continued to and continue to have investments in our stores, in our partners, that continues to keep us an employer of choice. Now, our ambition is to be the best job in retail. And so that's what our reinvention plan is focused upon.
3: Uh, and then finally, tease us and tell me, tell us if it's material for those investors who are trying to figure it out. Like there's something that you guys are, have up your sleeve, or at least you've suggested is up your sleeve, that we're going to be learning about that, that I know is being sort of um, advertised as transformative. Is that in the stock, whatever we're talking about here?
4: Well, I think it's the, the concept of innovation. So obviously I can't divulge much about that, but I can say it's innovation. And what Starbucks has always done well is innovate. It gives customers a reason to come into our stores, but more importantly, a reason to come back. And I think that's what creates the stickiness with customers. So I think you'll find it's another uh, innovation play and, as Howard said, game changing. So um, I think we'll all look forward to see how that
2: comes to to fruition. Uh,
3: That's what they call a tease in the TV business. (laughs) Uh, Rachel, we appreciate you being with us. Thank you.
2: Thank you. That's the podcast for today and for the week. Thank you for listening today and always. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross-Sorkin weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, follow Squawk Pod wherever you're listening now. We'll meet you back here on Monday. In the meantime, have a great weekend.
7: Now we are clear. Thanks, guys. Thank you so